Welcome to Scottish Independence Podcast. This week we're with Ian Bruce, the host of Rising Clyde, Scottish Climate Justice Podcast Series. And in this podcast, Ian is talking to Leonidas Aether, president of the main indigenous organisation CONAI in Ecuador. Recently, the Ecuadorian people voted to leave the oil in the soil beneath their Yazuni National Park. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Here it is. Hello and welcome to Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. I'm Ian Bruce in Glasgow. We have a busy period coming up, COP28 starting at the end of the month, the Global Day of Action at the end of that on the 9th of December. The Scottish Government's new climate plan still due out soon, although that seems to have slipped back into the beginning of next year. Today we're going to talk about a remarkable victory that should inspire us to face all of that. It's one of the most important steps forward uh, for the movement against fossil fuels anywhere in the world in recent times. Um, And it's now facing challenges, big challenges, that demand solidarity from those of us living here in Scotland and elsewhere in the global north. I'm talking about the referendum in Ecuador in August in which almost 60% voted in favour of leaving the oil in the ground beneath the Yasuni National Park. That's an area of Amazon rainforest, about half the size of Wales. It's one of the most biodiverse spots on the planet, and it's also holding about 20% of Ecuador's oil reserves. We're going to be talking to one of the people who made that campaign a success. Uh, He's Leonidas Issa, the president of the main indigenous organization, Konai. But first, here's a taste of that campaign that scored such a success on August the 20th. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, Leonidas, you were here in Scotland in July at the end of a, of a visit to Europe where you were uh, promoting that campaign, uh, Yes to Life, Yes to Yasuni, as well as launching your book, Uprising, which is about the two indigenous-led uh, rebellions, uprisings in 2019 and 2022, which you, of course, were, were one of the main leaders of. Now, I remember on that trip, when you were here in Scotland, you said several times that the campaign for the Yasuni was in a sense, a continuation of those two uprisings. So I want to start by asking you, how did the campaign for the Yasuni develop? In what sense was it a, a continuation of those uprisings in 2019 and 2022? And why was it so, so successful? Saludos cordiales. Hello, warmest greetings to our international friends. In fact, the triumph of the referendum on the Yasuni was the continuation of the struggles of 2019 and 2022, because the demands, especially in 2022, also had to do with looking after Mother Earth. 
looking after the forests and the highland moors. The extractive policies of the current outgoing government was what we were struggling against in 2022. If they want to implement extractive policies, whether oil or mining, there should be prior, free and informed consent as laid out in the Charter of the United Nations, but also in the Ecuadorian Constitution. In 2022, the agreement we had with the government was to develop a law to guarantee this prior, free and informed consent. But after a month, the government, instead of fulfilling that agreement, which we had signed, issued a decree. We argued that this was unconstitutional. In Ecuador, it's not allowed to regulate human rights or the rights of Mother Earth or collective rights through a decree, only through a law. So we pushed for the government of Guillermo Lasso to understand that the agreements reached in the working groups set up after the uprising of 2022 had to be fulfilled, not avoided by using a decree, in this case Decree 754, and we won that case too. Now that decree has been suspended and we are waiting for a final ruling from the Constitutional Court. So we can't look at the triumph of the Yasuni referendum as a separate issue. It's part of the whole struggle for the rights of our territories, the right to defend Mother Nature, the ecological and climatic conditions of our country, but also to send a powerful message to the world. I, I, I want to come back to those t topics you just mentioned, but I want to talk a little bit about, about the visit you made to Europe in, in July. And I want to ask you, uh, well, actually, let's have a look at a, a, a little bit of a, of a video from that, that, that visit first. Hemos venido a una gira eh, donde contiene la visita a diferentes colectivos, pero también una visita a, al Parlamento Europeo. En ese sentido creo que es importante evidenciar los procesos extractivos que están llevando muchas de las empresas eh, del norte eh, en nuestros países, minería, petróleo. petróleo. Sí a Oyasuni, sí a vida, sí a los pueblos indígenas, sí a naturaleza. Movimiento indígena por la dignidad. También nos decimos sí a vida, sí a Oyasuni. Muy a la vida, muy a que me ha dejado el sol. We in the Scottish Trade Union movement support our Ecuadorian sisters and brothers in their fight for justice, in their fight for equality, in their fight for ecology. We are with you all the way. Yes to life! Yes to destiny! So, Lilius, on that visit to Europe in July, how much interest, concern did you find amongst the organisations, the politicians you met for this issue of the Yasuni, 
for the wider campaigns against mining and extractive industries. Uh, and what kinds of connections do you did you think could be built with those organizations? Yo creo que la relación que ha tenido el tema de la consulta y la lucha contra la minería que ahora se ha levantado en el Ecuador, hay mucha receptividad a nivel internacional. I think there's a lot of receptivity internationally to this referendum and the struggles against mining in Ecuador. En Bélgica, en Inglaterra, en Escocia, I want to thank the trade unions in Spain, Belgium, England, Scotland, in all the countries we've been to, of course in France as well. And there's also other movements who are struggling in a similar way. For example, in France, we talk to the comrades of the peasant organization who are struggling around water. Here, the issue of mining is also about the defense of water and against privatizations. And in Europe, we see there's a very severe concentration of water because of the same system of production with monoculture and the same energy system. I think that from the conversations we had on our visit in July, we've identified an international agenda to work on together in the coming years. I think it's very important to establish a mechanism to coordinate with each movement in Europe and for them to be able to visit our communities as well and for our colleagues from the indigenous movement to be able to take part in those global struggles too, because this is a global problem. People in Europe are very concerned about the effects of global warming, which of course not only affects the places where oil production and mining are located, the impact is worldwide. And that's why we said during our trip to Europe that it's very important that the central countries, the countries that are taking advantage of the resources of third world countries, must be co-responsible for the global impact. In terms of a change in the energy system, they sometimes put forward the idea that it's possible to change the energy system just by using other resources, copper and other elements needed to run an electric system. So, brothers and sisters internationally, we think it's very important to understand it's a joint problem. It's not just an ecological issue, it's economic too. We think there are very good perspectives working together internationally in a way that can bring together the demands of the indigenous movement with the demands of the trade unions, the workers, the peasants internationally. Since then, Leonidas, of course, since the, the, the victory of the Yasuni referendum, uh, Ecuador has elected a new governor, uh, a new government, a new president, Daniel Noboa. He's young, rich, the heir to a huge banana exporting empire, and he'll be taking office in the coming weeks. And he's already promising an unashamedly neoliberal program of cuts and privatization. Now, he has said he'll respect the Yasuni uh, vote, but he's also said, uh, he hasn't said, sorry, but he hasn't said uh, how and when he'll do that. And he has also said that he will um, use uh, income from stepping up mining, other kinds of mining in other parts of the Amazon and other regions in order to make up the income lost from the Yasuni. So 
Where does the Yasuni campaign and the anti-extractivist campaign stand now and what do you think will happen with the new government? Bueno, el nuevo presidente del Ecuador, él también es el beneficiario de la campaña por el Yasuni. Well, the new president of Ecuador also benefited from the Yasuni campaign. He realized a couple of weeks before the elections that there was a tremendous support for the Yasuni issue, crushing support, more than 60%. Fuerza por el Yasuni aplastante, que superaba más del 60%. En ese sentido, para aprovechar de esa fuerza... So to take advantage of that, he came out in favor of Yasuni in the referendum, and he won some of the votes we had been gathering in support of the Yasuni for the referendum. Dentro de la consulta del Yasuni. Y eso, lo que ahora corresponde es cumplir... Now he has to deliver on that. ...con total alarma because we've seen in a very worrying way how he's taking advantage of those votes, especially of those young people in the cities, people who are concerned about the effects of climate change. But now he says he wants to compensate for the income he'll stop getting from the oil of Block 43 in the Yasuni with more mining in the provinces of Loja, Zamora, Morona, Santiago and other places. For example, the Condor Mirador project, where they are already building slag heaps that are going to reach a height of 263 metres, but with no proper structure to contain and support them. Those slag heaps are simply being dumped on earth platforms and at some time they will collapse. And the incoming government says it's going to develop more of that kind of mining. Y el gobierno nacional electo lo que ha dicho es que va a ir a profundizar esas formas del de, 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 quehacer de la minería. Por eso debemos decir a la comunidad internacional. So we have to say to the international community and to our own people, it's not enough that we won the referendum on oil drilling in the Yasuni to address the problem of climate change. The problem of the impacts on the ecosystem and the environment and the well-being of human beings is one integrated problem. You can't split it up by saying that, well, We'll save a bit of the forest by not getting oil out of Block 43, but we're going to destroy the mountains with other kinds of mining. That will not work. That's why we're showing with facts how little all this mining wealth remains in the country for development and how much is being taken away by the transnational companies. I'll give you an example. For each dollar that's invested in this country, those companies are earning $637. One dollar for $637 in terms of income which they're taking away from Ecuador. That's a terrible blow to the Ecuadorian economy with the poverty we are facing. But that's what these transnational companies have done for years. They take advantage of the situation. We want to say to the international community, you cannot save the forests but destroy the uplands. The new president, Daniel Noboa, will have to face our responses in all our territories. So yes to the moorlands, yes to the water, yes to life. If we save Mother Nature, we will save life and save human beings. We should understand the proposals as a whole and the problems as a whole. 
So, Leonidas, how do you see combining those two things? How does the struggle um, to, to, to protect the Yasuni, to stop the oil production, combine with the many, many local struggles against mining in different parts of Ecuador? Bueno, hay una lucha de demanda nacional en donde estamos, eh, en este caso, hermanados. Las nacionalidades de la Amazonía que defienden la, la, la selva. So there's a series of national demands where we stand together as brothers and sisters. Both the nationalities of the Amazon who defend the forest and the nationalities and peoples who defend the moorlands and the mountains and the coast. They're complementary. In the struggle against extractive industries, we come together in a countrywide struggle. That's why we've demanded a law to regulate all extractive industries. Of course, logically, the struggle against oil is more in Amazonia, although mining is advancing there too. You've only got to look at the province of Napo, where they destroyed the main river that goes past the most important city. What we've managed to do is show the local problems caused by the oil drilling, the contamination of the water sources, the contamination of the soil, and the contamination of everything that people consume, which has caused illnesses like cancer and diabetes. It's changed people's eating habits and eroded their cultural habits. Now, when we turn to the highlands, the Sierra, the biggest problem there is water. So that's the struggle in those territories, in the foothills between the mountains and the coast, and between the mountains and the Amazonia. These areas are very delicate ecologically, and there's only a small amount of arable land where you can cultivate crops and rear cattle. If the water disappears from those very sensitive areas, then effectively we destroy people's livelihood in those territories. So, by showing the specific problems in each sector, in the coast, in the mountains and in the Amazon, that allows us to undertake a national struggle rooted in each area. Leonidas, you've said, you mentioned just before in this interview, that it's not possible to think of a transition away from fossil fuels that's simply to the benefit of the North at the cost of the South, which involves, you know, um, invading and, and, uh, and damaging, destroying uh, community lands, indigenous lands, and so forth. So I wonder if we agree that there does have to be a transition away from fossil fuels, we have to get rid of uh, oil and gas and so forth. How can that be done while still respecting the rights of indigenous peoples and other communities in the South? Well, I think there are some areas where you won't be able to carry out either mining or oil drilling, not only where indigenous people live, but other sections of the population too. At least in Ecuador, there are areas where it's simply not possible to carry out mining, neither small scale, nor medium scale, nor large scale. 
If there are areas where you can develop these extractive industries, it has to be in the basis of a rigorous study to ensure that it does not affect the water and it doesn't contaminate the communities or the soil. And in Ecuador, which is a very small country, I think that's almost certainly impossible. ¿Cuánto de los territorios que permiten ecológicamente equilibrar la vida natural? But if we look at Europe, how many of the areas that have a certain ecological balance have mining going on? Why haven't they developed mining in Europe on that scale? Or have they just used up all their minerals? We talked about this with comments in Europe. Why haven't they developed mining there? There are whole mountains full of minerals. Why haven't they been exploited? Because effectively it would upset the ecological balance in those areas. So we have to have a global social awareness. It can't be split up just to favour some territories. We have to understand as human beings we need a common global awareness of this. The immediate impact of what we do in any part of the world is also global. Therefore, I think that to move from one energy system to another, clean energy system, we have to see what's already been taken out of the earth. We have to go back and think about whether those same materials already taken out of Mother Earth, which have already been industrialized, could be the basis of a new system using new scientific methods. But developing new processes of extraction, destroying new areas of land, contaminating the land more, that's not a viable perspective. Science now has to be looking at how, without consuming more of Mother Earth's resources, we can guarantee a decent, basic existence for humanity. We need science at the service of society and humanity, not science that takes advantage of human thought to concentrate big economic resources in certain countries, and even worse, in the hands of certain individuals around the globe. Mother Earth has already seen three times its capacity for resources consumed. It's impossible to sustain that kind of production. Therefore, we think it's important now to understand that we can't just go from an oil-based energy system to a clean energy system based on wind and other mineral products while using the same quantity of resources as in the oil-based system. Mountains play a fundamental role in the world, as do the river basins and the forests. So we shouldn't be taken in by this propaganda about clean energies without understanding what it means. Faced with the plans put forward by capitalism, we are going to defend our territories and defend life. And I suppose that goes back to what you said right at the beginning that about uh, prior and free consultation, that the communities themselves have to control this process. Is that right?
totalmente de acuerdo y debe entenderse que la consulta previa libre informada no es un mecanismo. I completely agree and we have to be clear that prior free and informed consent is not just a formality to be observed because that's what many states have done. Governments say, oh well, we've carried out a prior consultation, but it's just a formality and then they continue exploiting the mines and the oil. Prior, free and informed consent is stipulated by the United Nations, means that if people in a territory where the consultation is carried out with reliable information and without lies, if they say no, then that has to be binding. And then the state, the transnational companies, all of them have to respect that no. Luego de conversar, la gente mirando los beneficios de contaminación y a partir de la contaminación... If, after people have talked it through and shared all the information, they decide that there's still a benefit in terms of development for their territory, and they say, yes, then that has to be binding too. But it can't just be a formality. Un formalismo para cumplir, pero luego de que la gente diga no, igual imponen desde la lógica del Estado y de las empresas privadas transnacionales como hemos visto en nuestros territorios en estos tiempos. Es más, la consulta previa... And we've seen that prior consultation has been used sometimes as a kind of carrot offered to the communities. Like it's Christmas and you give out a bag of sweets, get people to sign here and then say, that was the consultation. Even though the people have never really discussed in any depth what would happen to their area or what benefits might come to their communities. ...lo que va a suceder en sus territorios y jamás ha discutido los beneficios que van a significar en sus territorios en caso de darla. Por ello, nosotros demandamos... That's why we're demanding prior, informed and free consultation where what the community says has to be binding. One other specific question, Leonidas, that's related to this I wanted to ask you is the question of subsidies. Now, a, a lot of people in the climate movement internationally say, no, we have to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies and so on and so forth. And the argument is understandable. But in the case of Ecuador, what is, it's, 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 you can't just get rid of the subsidies uh, uh, in the case of uh, indigenous communities, for example, who rely on fuel at a certain price to get their products to market and so on and so forth. So what is Konai's policy on subsidies? Because I think that may be one of the points of conflict with the coming, uh, the new government of, of Daniel Nabor, I understand. Bueno, debemos entender en materia económica, en el Ecuador. Well, we should understand that in the Ecuadorian economy, the prices of fuel affect all production. ¿Qué significa esto? Si en este momento... What does it mean if we suddenly eliminate subsidies? Eliminando el subsidio... A ver, en este momento está el precio del combustible... For example, if the price of diesel is $1.75, for example, if we eliminate the subsidy, then the international market price might take it to about $5 a gallon. ¿Qué significa? Toda la matriz productiva. That means a direct blow to the whole production system in Ecuador. For example, a lorry carrying food from the uplands or the coast of the Amazon to market. ¿No es cierto? Ese camión que carga, yo que sé, 100 dólares que alcanzaba ir a la costa, ahora tiene que... If that transport costs $100, then now it will double. For example, it costs maybe $200. What does that mean? If my potatoes are worth $10 at the current price, then immediately, because of the increase in fuel price, 
the price of the potatoes will double. Por el efecto inmediato, por el incremento del precio de los combustibles, lógicamente esas papas debería valer 20 dólares. Duplica el precio. Entonces, aquí no es un problema para el que tiene un vehículo. So here it's not merely a problem for the owner of the vehicle. These subsidies don't benefit only those who operate a truck or machinery, but the whole Ecuadorian population. Entonces, volviendo al mismo ejemplo. So if you go back to the same example, if my potatoes double in price, the poorest people won't be able to buy their food. And the immediate effect will be on poverty, which hasn't been resolved, where already more than 2 million people in Ecuador cannot eat regularly three times a day. They may be eating only once or twice a day. Más de 2 millones de personas en el Ecuador no pueden alimentarse establemente tres veces al día. Apenas han comido dos veces o a veces una vez al día. Dos millones de personas. If the cost of basic food increases, what's going to happen to those 2 million people who can't currently eat enough? Certainly they will not have access even to the minimum conditions of life. That's why the international community has to understand that the question of subsidies is not a problem just for those who are using transport or using machinery. It has a direct impact on the poorest communities in our country. Imagine, right back in 2005, there was a plan to deal with this. But 18 years later, we still haven't got over that form of dependency. So we have to look at what objectively will be the policy of compensation for the poorest sectors. In the working groups set up with the Lasso government after the big strike last year, there were eight points, including some of the most important ones, that remained unresolved. The first of those was the elimination of subsidies for those people who have been taking advantage of them for the last 17 years, like the big prawn producers and the industrial fishing and tuna companies. Those three sectors alone consume $1.25 billion in subsidised fuel. So we wanted to see if those sectors, which are important parts of the Ecuadorian economy, could stop using the Ecuadorian people's money through those subsidies. And the money we got back from them could then be passed to the poorest sectors to compensate them. But after a year, we have made no progress in that. You know why? Because there are powerful economic sectors in our country who go on and on about how they want a free market and neoliberal policies, while their own wealth depends on subsidies paid by all the Ecuadorian people. So we proposed three or four initiatives. We said, let's start by focusing the subsidies. But they don't want to move forward on that, because they know many of their own benefits depend on that, on them using the resources of the whole Ecuadorian people. We have to understand that you can't just eliminate subsidies in Ecuador because we haven't overcome structural poverty for the majority of the population, of the indigenous communities and other popular sectors. If that's not overcome, then when you increase the cost of fuel, everything goes up, food goes up, and it's impossible for the poorest people to pay. But there are sectors that can pay, if they don't have access to public health care, they can pay for a clinic, they can pay for a private hospital, no problem. There are people in Ecuador who are well off and taking advantage of such policies. 
If they can't get their children into state school, they can pay for private education in private universities. If they can't get a hold of food from peasant producers, no problem, they'll import it. But that's not true for the majority, who don't have access to even the most basic things. So the question of subsidies is linked to structural poverty, and it could just provoke worse chaos and worse poverty. Turning to the, the current situation, uh, Leonidas, how do you see these struggles around subsidies, but in general, the struggles of the, for the, all the demands of the indigenous movement and the popular movement, how do you see that developing in the coming month, the, begin, the first half of next year? What do you... What do you see as the, as the, as the immediate future? Bueno, nosotros ya hemos posesionado nuestras demandas. Well, we've put forward our demands, the same demands that weren't resolved before and that were left hanging by the outgoing president. Bajo la tutela del presidente de la república saliente y que en esos debates and in those talks, the economic powers that are now defending the incoming government also put forward their proposals. Now there's been an avalanche of criticism against the indigenous movement, with people saying, well, the president-elect hasn't even taken office yet, and yet Conai already has its 15 demands. We have said that in a democracy that, like ours, is tremendously violent, if you can call it a democracy at all, we recognise that there is a new government, but they also have to recognise there is a whole series of unresolved structural demands. They won't be resolved in the year and a half that this new government will have, but we have to ensure at least the minimum conditions to give people some relief. That's what we've argued, and why we're very concerned that some sectors, instead of moving forward with these proposals that we've been discussing with previous governments, have begun to quibble over this text or that, and not about reality. The reality shows that we have a terrible situation of insecurity, a reality dominated by the drug gangs. And who's connected to that? It's the same big, powerful economic groups who benefited from the policies in the past. So we have four points that we have put forward most forcefully to the incoming government. Firstly, the issue of extractive industries on land that's environmentally sensitive, on indigenous land or land where peasant production is concentrated. There must be none of that there. This has to be clear to the incoming president. Secondly, we can't have any more privatizations. Instead of thinking about selling those assets for a knockdown price, the government should be thinking about revitalizing the public enterprises so that they can provide benefits. The third theme we will put forward is that it's not acceptable to privatise the social security system in Ecuador that depends on the contribution of the workers. The workers' funds have been manipulated by previous governments, but now they must be accountable and we cannot have any more privatisation. The fourth theme we've put forward very responsibly to the government is the need for a policy of debt relief. More than two million families in Ecuador depend on credit, whether from private banks or public banks or cooperative banks. 
If these are to remain afloat, there has to be a policy of debt relief so that people can continue to pay, but in terms they can manage, not by overexploiting people and even confiscating their goods if they can't pay. And if President Naboa does not meet those four points, do you expect to see another round of big mobilizations led by the indigenous movement? Well, I've mentioned those four demands as priorities at the moment, amongst the overall list of 15 demands that we put forward publicly, which were part of the working groups agreed with the Ecuadorian government after the strike, but which the government has not fulfilled. So at the moment we are prioritising those four topics, but that may change. If the government doesn't meet these demands, we will have to make an evaluation based on what the government has done and how much people are prepared to put up with and how far they will tolerate these neoliberal policies. As things develop, we will take a position. I can't say now whether it will be a mobilisation, an uprising or what it will be. We can't anticipate that. The indigenous movement has always sought dialogue first, a process of transparent, responsible talks to solve the problems. But when the government refuses to listen, it has also moved to mobilise people. For the moment our proposals and demands are public and we've listened to the public responses so far, where they are trying to divide us. But they shouldn't think they can do the same as previous governments have tried to do. Those governments have fallen and we will maintain our unity in whatever situation and with any of those different forms of struggles that have occurred in Ecuador in recent years, including those two big uprisings. We don't rule anything out. It will depend on the decision taken by our people at a national level. And do you think it will be possible to, to overcome those divisions that have, have, have affected the indigenous movement, the social movement, the left in Ecuador in recent times? It's possible, it's necessary, it's urgent. And in fact, if we don't overcome this bipolar opposition, which the right has managed to instill, they are the only ones who benefit. The popular classes, the poor in Ecuador, will continue to suffer from the neoliberal policies. It's not a question of, you know, I defend this position and you defend that one. No, it's a question of concrete reality. We need to address the problems of the majority of Ecuadorian people. Otherwise, we will remain trapped in this idea that the right has taken advantage of, this idea of being for or against the previous president, Rafael Correa. The only people who benefit from that are the right. They've managed to instill a right-wing ideology in some of the poorest sections in Ecuador, in some of the grassroots of the indigenous movement and other popular movements as well. And it's shameful when we see some movements and parties who claim to be of the left, who campaign alongside President Lasso, are alongside the incoming President Noboa. They don't say, oh no, we were wrong, we made a mistake. Because what we need now is an integrated proposal where people are prepared to put forward and defend our demands. 
There is a really urgent need for unity amongst all sectors of the peoples, whites, mestizos, indigenous people, Afro-descendants and all the different identities, but always firmly located on the side of the people, because it's the people who are the majority and who feel the most negative effects of the implementation of neoliberal policies by all the recent governments. And one final question, Leonidas. What concrete tasks are you proposing or asking your international partners, organizations, trade unions around the world to do to support your struggles in Ecuador? Well, first of all, I want to recognize the efforts that were made during our visit. The outstanding task now is to coordinate internationally so that it's not just a few leaders in Ecuador, but we have a real international network to communicate the voices of the real concrete struggles. There are some demands which are specific to Ecuador, but there are also many demands around opposition to extractivism, around climate change, around the struggle against transnational companies, which are demands which have to be forward internationally. That's why it seems important to me this question of strengthening the capacity to combine our voices internationally around our demands in Ecuador, but also around these international demands on the global impacts of climate change, the energy framework, the extractive industries and so forth. The second topic that we dealt with is the possibility of establishing a mechanism of unity at an international level, an international platform where we can identify the struggles we are taking part in and bring together organizations internationally around those. And the third theme was that there should be a strategic campaign in the area of communications, where we can share communications and messages from local communities, not only across Ecuador and Latin America, but in countries across the world. I think those were the main activities proposed. And a fourth one was for experience of exchanges between the struggles located in our countries of the third world, in Ecuador, for example, and also the experiences of struggle in Europe. In that sense, we want to establish a mechanism of direct relations between the struggles in Europe and in our countries like Ecuador. And maybe the leaders who emerge around these new experiences and exchanges with other countries can be leaders who are aware and sensitive not only to our own struggles here in Ecuador, but also to the global struggles. As I've said, we need people, individuals and collective groups with a global social awareness. We can't remain trapped in partial struggles the whole time. These are, of course, very important in themselves. But those struggles will be much more effective when we can globalise the awareness. Thank you so much, Leonidas. Muchísimas gracias, Leonidas. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation full of uh, things to think about and lessons to learn for us in the, in the North uh, and, and to, to try and develop those with yourselves in Ecuador and other parts of the Global South. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm afraid we've come to the end of this edition of Rising Clyde. I'm in Bruce in Glasgow. 
Until next time, thank you very much. So thank you very much to everyone internationally for this international spirit. Let's unite our struggles. A big embrace from the territory here of the people of the perpendicular sun, as we call the indigenous Quito people of this area. Many thanks from Ecuador. Gracias, Leonidas. Ciao. You've been listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts, and this week we were with Ian Bruce, host of Rising Clyde, the Scottish Environmental Justice Programme. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts on the theme of climate emergency and environmental justice, head over to the website called scottishindiepod.scot and have a look at our climate emergency playlist.